right, everybody. So today, back on the podcast, we have a roundtable with the uh, the Beanie Boys here. What's up, guys? Yeah, man. Hello, hello. Uh, always the Beanies, it seems, every time we're on a podcast <laughs> together. Yesterday, I bought two, and none of them were as good as this. It's so hard to find one that is like short. And this is actually a female beanie, and I think that's why it's so good, because I don't need to like fold it over. Yeah, uh, yeah it I like fits mine. Perfectly. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then there are these other ones that are like you know, like you fold it too much, then it looks like some winter hat, and and or like they're so tight that they are like, actually one of them is so tight that I thought that this could be like a cool like eye lift because like it naturally like pulls everything up, um, <laughs> but this one is just perfect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so a few topics I wanted to dive into today, uh, but I figured I'd start with one that I think a lot of people would find interesting. And that is on the idea of stalls and kind of breaking through stalls, because we've all had something like that in, in like, you know, the last year or maybe two where, um, Abel, I want to get a little bit more involved with your, your back progress. Actually, and for both of you, it was really back, I think. I mean, maybe there's some other stuff. And then for me, I'm still kind of weighing if I've broken through a stall, but I, I mentioned recently how my arms are the biggest they've ever been at this weight. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it does tell me something, especially after so much time. So, um, so first part of it would be after lifting for so long, was there a key to you of like, oh, this is a true stall versus I just need to go another week or two and, and just keep trying. Uh, and, and once you did identify this as a legitimate stall, what would be the first thing you would be changing? My thing is usually upping food or prioritizing recovery more in some way. Um, I haven't really found any for sure training hacks that are going to get you through a stall. I mean, you know, there's the idea of, you know, adding more volume, adding a little more intensity, increasing frequency slightly if you're recovering, things like that. But but ultimately for me over the years, it's always been just more food and less outside activity, uh, whether that's, you know, doing, doing less cardio, uh, less drinking if it was in college yeah, or, uh, or just sleeping more and getting more high quality sleep. So just to so understand what you're saying, but like, this is what you would do if there's some like weird, mysterious stool or it like like that would be your like one of your first things that you would resort to when things are kind of uh, stagnating in the gym well i think it, you have to kind of distinguish that that was the first part of the question is like is it a true stall so you're making gains you're making progress you know if you're a beginner this is probably not super relevant unless you're really not doing things correctly but you know you get to that five six seven year mark i mean it could be later too and just Firstly, identifying, okay, is this just a slow week? Like you, even if you are progressing well as a late intermediate, that could mean that you're not adding weight to the bar for maybe one or two months. So is that all that's happening? I just have to keep going versus no, like what I'm doing is actually not working. If I do it for the next six months, I'm still not going to progress. Is it just you wait it out and you see and you wait until that two or three month mark? Or is there something that you kind of notice to identify so let, let's like break it into two. So let's start with that one. So for you, Abel, like anything that you've noticed, this is actually a stall versus I just need to keep doing the same thing, but longer. Yeah, so that that is that is definitely one of the biggest things and biggest question marks. And one of the things that makes makes bodybuilding or hypertrophy training so annoying. And one of the things that makes me wish that it was really just as simple as you do enough volume and you're growing because 
then it would be straightforward. Like maybe you would have to spend a lot of time in the gym, but you just do a few more sets and then it's sorted. And this is why you always need to be very attentive and, and very patient as well. And so I think the first things to kind of diagnose is, well, two things actually, how acute it is. And the other thing is how local versus global or systematic the um, or systemic the stool is. So if we think about it logically, if you went and bench pressed yesterday and then you go and bench press within the same rep range and with the same weight today and you're weaker, we wouldn't consider that a regression. Or if it's the same performance as yesterday, we wouldn't consider that a stool because, of course, like you're fatigued. Um, if it's in two days, still five days, probably still not. If, if it's in a week, maybe it's still not a stall, but at that point we are not happy if it's the same performance or worse. And so that is basically like the, the time frame and, and just how acute the, the problem or, or non-problem is that we are dealing with. And then from then on, it, the next thing is like how local it is. So if it's just the bench press, then we are talking about a bench press problem probably. If otherwise, like let's say I'm doing dumbbell bench presses and flies and all of those are progressing, then that's good. Um, and from then on, I guess the most systemic issue would be when it's multiple muscle groups at the same time. And I think that's when the lifestyle issue comes in. So I think that, that those are the first things that you kind of need to need to check. Um, and, and then, of course, like the context also matters. So, and I'm curious how you go about this um, as well, because during dieting, up to a certain point, you will try to progress. And when that's not happening, you will sort of treat it as as any other stagnation. Like, well, like, like what the hell is happening? But there comes a point where you're like really digging deep when it's like so you come to an acceptance with with the fact and you sort of just like well I'll do do the best that I can in the gym but realistically I cannot expect myself to just keep hitting PRs um so and and then of course like training age comes to it as well uh personally for me at at this point any sort of new exercise that and, and by new I just mean it hasn't been in my routine for like really at least a year if i'm not hitting some sort of pr like at least like every second every third session but but preferably more frequently but at the very least then that then i'm i'm raising an eyebrow uh and and when it's multiple things for a muscle group that's that that's when i will probably be looking at at volume um as 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 the biggest issue um so so yeah, like I, I think I didn't actually answer the question, but I said a lot of smart things, didn't I? So <laughs> what do you guys think of that? Yeah. I thoughts, I, but go ahead, Brian. Yeah. So uh, it just made me think about like trying to reflect on the first five to 10 years of my training because that was quite a long time ago. And so this question I think is is very relevant to that intermediate early advanced stage more or less. And, uh, so I, I agree with Abel as I was, as I was thinking about what he was saying, there's definitely a number of different levers you can pull, uh, volume for sure is one. The one that really popped out into my mind though, was lowering the rep range. And it reminded me of how for a number of years, maybe even five years from years 
six through 11 or something like that. No, five through 10, whatever. I would often alternate between two rep schemes. One being like the 12, 10, eight, six or 10, eight, six, four kind of pyramid style. And then I would have max OT, which was just straight sets of four to six reps for the most part. And when I would stall out on the 12, 10, eight, six approach, it wouldn't even require me to change movements necessarily. I would often just keep the exact same movements, but switch them to the max OT style of just straight sets of four to six. And usually I'd get some really quick progress in there that would last for four to eight weeks. And then I would actually hit like a real wall from that point, And I would need to uh, max OT had a, a, a deload that they would incorporate into their program. And so I would take their, their recommended deload and come back. And I would either continue with the max OT or I would go back to the pyramid rep scheme and really just alternate between those two. And so there does seem to be something to, to variation, um, not just in exercise selection, but in rep scheme. And then the idea of training with lower reps to kind of push some progress and then maybe taking a time to recover and going back to the slightly higher rep ranges. Yeah. Well, I like that you mentioned though about, is it, you know, just a single exercise or is it, you know, all of them across the board? I know you've said before that Menno talks about deloading just one exercise at a time, which I, I personally don't love that idea. Um, maybe you could say yes. muscle groups or, or even like a set, like if you were to say, Hey, like push pull legs and depressing, you know, I'm going to deload that maybe, but, um, but in any case, I, I do like that as far as being able to determine whether or not you're truly stalled, right? Is this an overall recovery issue or is it just this exercise needs to be switched out? So I, I like that. Um, I think yeah. also none of you guys mentioned, which I'm surprised because I think both of you guys had new progress for this reason, which is new exercise variations. And so not just adding volume, like to me, I, I said this before, but I, I think if you're truly, you know, intermediate advanced and you've been going for a long time, and you just have been doing again like a barbell curl and you, you've gotten good results with it i don't know if just adding a couple more sets of barbell curl is going to be the answer compared to maybe trying a new exercise that's going to stimulate it in a way that it hasn't been stimulated before um because we, we go back to the idea of well almost everybody is in this but like broadly eight to 20 set per week range and maybe even if you want to narrow it a little bit you know, we could maybe say 10 to 15 for most people. It's like pretty ideal. Um, people aren't doing 40, 50 sets as they get more advanced, right? That's not really what's happening. So it's a lot of the mm -hmm. same stuff. And I think finding, I mean, I, I'm not big on the, it's all about focus on the mind-muscle connection, but I do think that's a component of it. And finding those right exercises for you is a component of it. So I would tell people if they're really stalled, um, look at the exercise variation. And, you know, again, I think, if it's if your calves are stalled, I don't know if that's going to make a huge difference if you switch from, you know, a leg press to like a barbell uh, calf raise or something like that. But I think for back specifically, um, even like delts, if you're looking at delts overall, because there are so many different ways and angles to hit it. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff now with like the stretch mediated hypertrophy and how maybe you can try things that emphasize the stretch more. I would be more keen on that. Assuming, of course, that the person is installed because the stuff you mentioned early on, Brian, with they're just literally not sleeping or they're getting yeah. drunk four nights a week. Obviously, all of that is going to be way you know more important than exercise variation. But once yeah. that's handled, then yeah. Isn't that sort of like a facade of progress, though? I mean, we've talked about this in the group and on this podcast before that, you know, changing exercises gives you that 
impression that you're making progress again because of the novel movement but are you really making progress and and you've even commented for me where i've been doing the same movement for a year and you're like well you're still making neural gains and i'm like am i though <laughs> and so it seems like you know in a sense you're sort of contradicting what you said in the past year have i ever said that i don't recall ever saying <laughs> that right <laughs> yeah. um no totally and, and that's what makes it so difficult like with with the exercises i'm doing now um, so right now I'm the heaviest I've been in a while. Uh, I was about 206. And if, if not for other reasons, I would actually even be considering going up to 210 or 215 because you kind of get used to it, right? When you're like a certain weight and body fat, you eventually kind of get used to that look. So even though my previous 190 self would probably look at this and be like, dude, you're so soft. Now I've just kind of gotten used to it. So like, let's just keep going, right? Um, but while I think and feel things are going well, it's really hard to gauge because the exercises I'm doing are not the longstanding ones that I have comparisons to for most of my training career, right? I'm not doing a barbell back squat. I'm not doing a barbell deadlift. I'm not doing barbell bench press. I'm not doing all those things. Um, the fact that the arms are measurably bigger, that that is a more tangible thing, but otherwise it, it is tough. Where that limit is, um, I don't know of like when you can call this true progress, uh, but I, that's why I don't think you can just focus on one thing because I have preached many times about how once you add a new exercise, it is kind of this pseudo progress you get. And I, I think you need to be doing it for a long time. So um, I'd still stand by like the exercise variation being important, but I, I am somebody who believes you've got to be doing it for a long time and not just rotate even every few months. I mean, mm -hmm. I know some people don't agree with that, but I've just seen it in my own experience where we've talked about it numerous times, how much progress, quote unquote, progress can be made without real tangible muscle gain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, even um, doing an exercise differently, sorry, I will just, just even performing it differently. So with my hack press, you know, I was performing it slow controlled reps to the bottom, back up, et cetera. As soon as I added a three second pause at the stretch position at the bottom, that changed the movement. And basically I had to drop the weight, mm -hmm. you know, 60 pounds, but within a matter of months, I was working back up closer to the weights I was doing before. And now with this pause, so it's really hard to to quantify how many gains were made there. Yeah, and actually one yeah, thing you mentioned earlier about... Ah! You're trolling me, you two. <laughs> <laughs> you find a way to mute somebody who speaks, just mute Abel so we can hear. Um, just one more thing on the... You, you, you mentioned before about dropping the reps. Yeah. And, and that's something I like to do almost more from an ego standpoint when I... Uh, when I want to reset form. So I just did this on, on a leg curl. So I was getting to the point where I was doing, you know, whatever the machine was 155. And I was getting to the point that it set 13 reps for the first set. And it was kind of loose. And I was like, well, I hate to see. And again, this is just a mental thing. Uh, I hate to see the reps just drop off. So you know what, I'm going to go up a little bit in weight, actually, but then accept that I'm going to go down maybe four or five reps. And then now I'm using a higher weight than I was but my form is significantly better and I can just kind of, it is basically a reset. You don't have to increase the weight if you don't want to. I just mentally like to, to do it that way. Um, and it, by changing the weight, I think it makes it a little easier to take the ego out of it and say, okay, just reset the form, focus on that and go back up. Cause some of these exercises, like a lateral raise, I'm probably never actually going to increase the weight on a lateral raise in my life, or at least wouldn't need to, because I mean, what am I, I mean, I, I know you go kind of heavy on them or you used to Brian, but if I'm doing a 30 pound strict dumbbell lateral raise, I mean, I'm, I'm never going to get to that same form with 
even 35 pounds, really. I mean, if you think from a percentage standpoint, it's like a 15% increase in form or a 15% increase in, yeah. in weight there. I'm not going to get 15% absolutely stronger, right? So um, sometimes those form resets can be helpful. Yep. All right, Abel, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was just going to ask, um, do you guys mind if I go to the toilet? Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I actually do that uh, that weight increase proactively, um, which is what I. So I'm actually, I, I might have also heard this from Menno. Uh, in fact, now that I think of it, I definitely did the plateau breaker. So it, it basically just like going heavier proactively, and then try to hit um, an M rep there, and probably I I'm gonna get less reps, but then I'm just gonna go back to the weight where I was stuck at, and that oddly enough, it it actually really nicely tends to do the trick. So I go back to the previous weight the next session. And I would guess it's because it, it stimulates the, the nervous system a little bit. Um, it actually really nicely helps breaking through plateaus. Um, but what's also interesting, oh, okay, I have it in. I was like, how do I hear you when this is out? I'm just seeing it on the camera. Uh, but what's what's interesting is that I think in practice, usually you're, you're dealing with an exercise specific issue. So if seriously multiple things are stagnating or, or most muscle groups are stagnating and within that, like two out of three or three out of four lifts are, are stalling, that probably means in practice that you seriously mess something up with your programming or your lifestyle is, is really not how it's supposed to be. And so it's kind of interesting that eventually everything kind of ending up looking like some sort of a power lifter, like specialization phase on the bench press or on the squat, or it might be the leg press or some machine exercise, but still like you're correcting technique and you're changing, like you're undulating the rep range of that exercise. And eventually it's, it's sort of like, you have to ask the question of, is this really helping with the hypertrophy side of things? Or am I just um, am I just going for these like vanity metrics almost like okay I want to see the leg press going up, and and I think the answer might actually be yes. It's just that if you don't fix that and you're like okay it it doesn't matter because like I'm still getting in the volume and whatever then then you're not testing whether tweaking technique and tweaking these things could fix the plateau or it's some more structural issue with your training. Because if that was the case, then then you do need to fix that because that probably hurts hypertrophy as well. So if the issue is that it's too much volume or too little volume, that could actually be important for hypertrophy as well. Um, and then what I also wanted to say is that oftentimes it's um, I feel like once you're seriously stagnating with something, you either do some some big change so like yeah i agree like going lower in reps can often help like with, with some exercises i think it's just not feasible to progress beyond a certain point like for me with chin-ups there's no way i could progress for months in the like with a rep target of 12 let's say like it's just too many reps like i'm gonna my forearms are gonna be guessing out and i'm gonna be out of breath like like it needs to be like somewhere around like six like maybe eight uh a lot of people find things like that with the squat, for example. But I think like once you're seriously stagnating, like oftentimes there, there's also this mental defeat that you suffer almost before you even start the lift. Like, I don't, I'm sure you guys know that, that feeling when it's been so many, 
occasions that you went there and, and, and tried and you failed and you go there and you're not even expecting to finally hit that 10th rep or whatever it is. So yeah, that's my input. Cool. All right. So I wanted to talk a little bit, shifting gears here to uh, the book, Die With Zero. So this was, I think it was written years ago. And for whatever reason, it kind of did the rounds. I think the guy was going on a lot of people's podcasts and uh, Peter Atia's podcast he was on. I've seen other people podcasts talk about it. So a little bit of a different topic here, but I, I've seen a number of people, and actually this might have been in one of our, our Q&As, where people uh, kind of have this idea, or at least at least on like the TikTok generation of, you know, when you're older, it doesn't really matter, like live for the now. And Brian, you and I have talked about this. On the other hand, most of the uh, conventional wisdom would be to like save, save, save. And so the reason we're talking about this is one, well, sometimes we have interests outside of bodybuilding <laughs> to discuss. So I just think this would be interesting for a lot of people. Um, but two, I do think it's relevant because you have a lot of people in the the fitness world that, um, and again, like the TikTok generation that focus on maybe the wrong things, I think. So uh, for people who are not familiar with the book, the idea behind it is essentially that Yes, there are going to be people that um, really need to save a lot more. But from this guy's viewpoint, you really should be focusing a lot on the experiences now, not only because, you know, the future is not guaranteed, but one of the ideas I really like about it is, is basically the idea of banking memories. So you think of, okay, you, you have a, you know, you take $1,000, you invest it, and then that grows and grows. And so then I... I there's some of the stuff in the book that's like, okay, kind of common sense. But one thing I had not really thought about is the idea of like the interest you get on these memories. So if you have an experience at 30, you are going to relive and, and you know, kind of have those memories until the day you die, which maybe, you know, might be another 60 years from now versus if you wait, not only may the experience not be as good when you're older, but there's less time to reminisce and enjoy it. Um, and, and I think for those who are, you know, have a modicum of success in their life. This is kind of a, a good idea because I've seen certain people where they just don't experience life and they just wait until their retirement. And um, I, I've discussed before how I have patients from one year old to basically a hundred years old and the decline is precipitous, you know, seeing it in people's older ages, especially 70 plus. And a lot of people's retirements are not what they expected to be. I mean, I've seen, I've had some patients who died right before, right after they retired. Um, but even those who still lived a long time, it's it's not the quality that they expected. So um, that's kind of broad, but I know, Brian, you've at least read some of it. So maybe initial thoughts there. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. Um, I think the thing that was most profound for me in in what I took away from it is the idea of experiencing things at the right time in your life. Mm -hmm. And the thing that really kind of hit home with me for that was I uh, went on a trip to Costa Rica when I was 20, 21 years old. And it was three months. I was working, teaching English. I was working with Habitat for Humanities, building houses. And the entire time I was either living in hostels with, you know, in a room with five other guys, or I was in a uh, a local housing unit with uh, a local Costa Rican family. And so none of my uh, amenities were kind of what you would expect in, in America. And 
I was talking with my wife about this because now when we travel, we have a certain expectation of how we want to to live and where we want to stay and what type of amenities we want to have. And when I was 20, I didn't care about any of that. All I wanted to do was like go hang out with people, be around people all the time, which is the exact opposite now. Now I'm like, oh, I, I it's the end of the day. I need I need my introverted personal time, you know. Yeah. But back then it was, oh, the day of hard work on this house is done. I want to be with a bunch of people. I want to meet some Costa Rican girls, go out and get a couple drinks. Like it doesn't matter if I go to bed at 2 a.m. in a hostel with a bunch of other sweaty dudes because that's you know what what I'm part of at the moment, and I was super ingrained in it. That's not the experience I want to have now. And I'm so thankful that I had that experience then. Um, because like you said, the memories, man, I bank on those memories constantly. Mm-hmm. And the trips that I want to take with my wife when we're retired, I still do hope to do some active things. But no, I'm not going to plan on climbing Machu Picchu when I'm 80. So there there definitely is is a certain point in life where certain experiences are more applicable than they are in other times. And uh, that was the big message I think that I took away from it. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Abel. Go. Uh, you, you go and um, let's agree that after that, this me. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he brings up an example with, it probably was early on in the book about his friend who did basically that, right. He traveled, I think to Europe and, yep. you know, fell in love and, and whatever, went stayed in hostels. And the time for that was in your mid twenties. Right. And if you miss that, you miss it. I mean, you, that's just not a trip for a 40 year old to have. Right. I think Jordan Peterson says you never want to be the oldest guy at the frat party. Right. And it's almost sad. It's like, you know, I I'll see guy who's dating in their, 20s and, and it's like yeah like okay you're doing this you're doing that it's almost somebody when somebody who's 50 talks about like oh like my girlfriend or my boyfriend it's kind of like oh like it's almost like takes you back a second yeah i'm not and again like i realize that could sound judgmental but just speak in reality it, it is unusual right it's like well that was kind of something to do early in your life and hopefully by this point in your life you've kind of had that you've gotten established right or um i think jeff uh in our recent podcast jeff Rivera schofield was talking about how being like a, an English teacher in China is kind of cool in your 20s. It's okay in your 30s. It's probably not something you want to be doing like when you're 50. And that I, I didn't really, I mean, so again, I think if we say it, nobody's going to be like, oh, that's totally the wrong idea. But until you say it out loud or you hear it verbalized, maybe you don't think about it as much. And I think there's a lot to be said for that with like different experiences in life. Um, again, we talked about dating and careers, but just so many things, you know, if we go back to the fitness stuff, gaining muscle, if you come in at 50 years old and you say, I, I want to really like be a power lifter now. And I, I want to have the maximum amount of muscle, I'm not saying you can't do it, but there was kind of a period in life to, to do those things. And uh, I, I think that's something that people need to be aware of because it does fly, right? We have, we hear it all the time you know, you, you blink and 20 years go by, but I mean, it is kind of true that the time really does fly. So, all right, Abel. <laughs> I reserved it in advance. So I was just calmly listening. I know I will get my turn. <laughs> um, so, so I, I, I love this topic and I'm pretty sure we even talked about it like, um, off air before. And, um, I think the first thing that people should realize when listening to this and, maybe we could have clarified it in the beginning um is that this is not just about finances and and accumulating wealth and and versus uh, actually spending the money and and gaining experiences but like this could be applied to anything so 
you know, think of like people, fitness enthusiasts that are listening to this, like think of the times when you didn't go out, when you were invited to some party or something, if you're, if you're younger now, and because like you wanted to get lean and like you didn't want to go over your macros or really anything like that. And I like, this is actually a very strong theme in my life because I actually did miss out on a lot of things. Um, and, and, and not because um, I was such a responsible person all my life or something. It's like there were just several occasions where I felt like, okay, I'm just about to be making some really cool progress towards a goal that I felt was really meaningful to me. Like the first time I got very lean, for example, I said no to a lot of things that would have made it more difficult to get lean, at least like for that day. It would have come with more headache and stuff, and I chose to stay home. And at the time, I felt really good about that decision. And it's, you know, I cannot even say that I feel bad about not going to those things because like, you know, cool experiences are often those that once you're there and you see how cool it was, then you see like, oh, well, I'm so glad that I did it. If you're not there, like you're just going to ask your friends like, hey, how was that party? And they were like, oh, yeah, like it was very cool. Okay, like what do you do with that information? Like you, you, you cannot really know what you missed out on. And... I, I think that this is one of those things that you almost have to get lucky, I think, to be in an environment where you're forced to go through a lot of these experiences that will, like, you know, pay interest as time goes forward. Because, you know, Brian, you said that, you know, you wouldn't want to do those crazy travels that you did when you were 20. But I'm, I mean, I'm guessing that if your 20-year-old self would ask the question, like, okay, am I going to be with a bunch of sweaty dudes in a tent or wherever you were staying? Or do you want to be in this very lovely hotel room with with a huge TV and a billion channels and a swimming pool in the hotel? I'm sure you would have chose chosen the latter. The difference is that that wouldn't have been a very interesting story now. Like, if you're grabbing beer with your friends, like, yeah, dude, like, when we went to that hotel room and everything was perfect. And it's like, oh, Cool yeah. story. I'm glad you had a great time. Um, I wouldn't and- have had the financial wherewithal to be able to do that, though. So it was kind of like but, sure. the experience was necessary for that time, which is part yes. of the part of the beauty of it. I think, and 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 that speaks to what I said. Like you were kind of lucky that you didn't have the financial means. Uh, I mean, unlucky in some ways, but but in this aspect, you were lucky. And and I think like all of us, if we think back to some of the coolest things that ever happened to us, like like most of those things were some pretty messed up stories or not not most maybe but but a lot of them and um i i think that you cannot like reasonably expect to be chasing out like messed up stuff over the course of your life so i say a part of it is luck i think and also part of it is just um you know having the personality also like having the surroundings to to be even exposed to those things and you know i I personally live with a lot of regret, but at the same time, I, I think it's also important to like forgive yourself for that uh, looking back because honestly, a lot of those things I can look back and I, I could say like, yeah, I wish I did this and I wish I did that. But like, realistically, I would probably do the same if I went back because I, I understand why I did those things. Like they've mentioned dating and a lot of those things. I'm married now, so I'm not going around like trying to chase down chicks but part of it is frustrating because because actually like now i could enjoy it so much more than when the time was right for that like i feel 
now in my 30s i feel so much better in my skin i'm so much more confident it seems like chicks also like me more by the way <laughs> like um i was like when i was in my early 20s man like it seemed like like much older chicks liked me and then <laughs> and, and and then like my own age was just like not super interested um so so it was very difficult i always, always felt like judged when when we went out i felt like i'm put on a parade like it, it's always like every moment like you have to watch your your actions like what are you gonna say are you wearing expensive enough clothes like depending on the people you're hanging out with I, I was full of complexions like I still had fun times and I still did a lot of those like young guy things but it honestly like half of me was always like looking forward for this whole thing to end finally so I can go home and just like be away from this now whenever I'm exposed to something like that like man this is so cool like and and it, it's so rare compared to that like that this actually happens and and it's frustrating so you know like i i gotta cut some slack to to the people that are trying to make up for some lost time probably in other areas as well um and yeah man there's a lot 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 more thing lot more things to say um definitely i think it's tough i don't want to because you know it, it like what do you tell the person then that missed that opportunity there was actually some people commenting about what i said with the jeffrey uh podcast on school and somebody said oh imagine thinking that 30 was late to go to school and i was like it is late to go to school like just by definition a very small percentage of people go to college when they're 30 like that is absolutely late doesn't mean you can't do it and i wouldn't tell somebody not to do it if that's a dream of theirs that's great but it is late and it's going to be a very different experience. I mean, the people, even when I was in dental school, there were some like average, I was 22, average age was 26. There were a couple people who were like 32 with kids. It was a very different experience for them compared to us. And same thing with college. There was like, you know, the 128 year olds, like, well, that's a very different experience as well. Like, it's just a different part of your life. I'm um, not saying not to do those things. And it is tough too, because to your point, Abel, like, um, you, you, if you want to go back to the dating example, there's a lot of men where you become more successful and confident in your 30s than your 20s. But a lot of times, if you are hoping to have maybe like a, a family of three kids or something, well, starting settling down at 35 might not work as well as somebody who did it earlier. I mean, again, men, you know, tend to have more flexibility, obviously, with the biological age and whatnot than women do. But, um, but there are just certain things where it's like, this is the time. Now, um, I, I do want to play devil's advocate a little bit, though, because I sometimes wonder, as much as the book was interesting, if you look at who said it really resonated with them, it's mostly people who are successful. So like Peter T is like, oh, yes, like I've, I've spent so much time grinding. I need to listen to this book. I've talked to a few other dentists who are also very successful. And they're like, oh, this is so good. Like one guy I know, he just basically retired at 30 six and he's you know i don't know what he's gonna do but he's kind of doing like the u.s trip with an rv with his three or four kids and that's like he's taking the time to do it that's awesome but for a lot of people and, and to be fair the book does point out that it that there are these people out there so it's not like it says nobody is in this category but i would say maybe even the majority of people are in the category that they they need to set themselves up and work hard and there's obviously a balance that you can do both but I would hope people don't take that message and say, oh, see, it's all about the experiences and therefore not going to study, not going to put in the time now to, you know, set myself up for later, because as much as there is a certain time for the good experiences, there's also a certain time for establishing yourself in your career, doing well in school. And if you mess that up, I mean, you know, I have a friend who 
it, it, it's kind of working out, but he kind of slept off. He almost got kicked out of college. He, because of that, he went into a career he didn't really like. And now he's in his thirties trying to get into medicine and it's, it's much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm proud of him. I mean, he, he's doing it and, and it's working, but it, it's a very different experience than if he set himself up earlier. So I don't want people to hear this and think like, don't slack. I, I mean, unfortunately we have to decide at a very young age of what we're going to do in our career. And, and that does kind of project a lot of what then is to come. Well, when we talk about experiences and and when the right time is to have them, you actually can't have those experiences later in life or those retired experiences if you don't have some semblance of financial security that was likely set up earlier in your years. And so I don't know, that's just an important piece, I think, to remember that, hey, you know, have these experiences, whether it's we're going to take a family trip or whatever it is at the time in your life once a year so that I can still make sure that I'm saving something for the trips that I want to take when I'm older. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit, um, yeah. Like both of you are making good points that, in a way, this is kind of a a, a hypocritical or I don't know, in Hungarian we have a we have a good term like. So anyway, like it's 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 always very rewarding to make arguments against problems that don't really exist, and everybody agrees because like nobody is really in that situation. Like realistically, like are there people who missed out on stuff? Of course. But like, so let's take the going out, like doing, like traveling with friends, dating hot chicks and whatever, or hot guys, like who are the people that are going to be missing out on those things usually, but it's either the kid who was like the loser in class and nobody wanted to date them or go out with them. So, okay. Like, uh, Hey, don't miss out on experiences. I think, yeah, I would really like to, but like (laughs) others want me to miss out on that. It looks like, or the kid who didn't have money because their parents were poor um the the people who were like 21 and 22 i'm sure in the us it's more because like you're such a like achievement like oriented culture compared to others i think but like most of europe i can say for sure the kids that are in their early 20s and are not participating in the cool stuff because they're so responsible i mean there's not many who otherwise would have the opportunity and so like yeah like like like, let's say a kid who was like the loser in class like not a good looking guy and whatever um a late bloomer as well maybe finally won in life and now is financially stable maybe also like took care of his body like got a couple of plastic surgeries whatever um and and so now he has all the cool opportunities of course he wants to make up for some lost time so like okay and and what are we gonna say to them like Ah, oh, dude, but you so should have had those experiences earlier. Eh, you know, yeah. sure. So, with the regrets aspect of it, um, Abel, you said you you live with a lot of regret. I know it's almost yeah. a, a trite saying it's at this one because it's it's said so often that you regret the things you don't do rather than the things you do. Right? Um, I would say that that is pretty uh, pretty accurate for my life. I'm wondering if mm-hmm. that is accurate for your lives as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, I regret a lot of things I did, but go on, Brian. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, I, I I agree, actually, that I hadn't necessarily thought about it with that with that perspective. But as soon as you said it, I was thinking about it. And I mean, sure, there's certain things that I did that I wish I didn't do. Obviously, you have those moments after a night out where you wake up and you're like, wait, did I do that? Or mm-hmm. like, what are people's perspectives of me after I did that type thing? Um, but as far as actual 
experiences that I did or did not do. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Especially in retrospect, when that shit is way in the past, I'd much rather have done more things and had slight regrets for them than the larger regret of not doing them at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's definitely most of the things that I really regret or things that I actually missed out on. And, and most of them are not even like very specific things. It's more so phases of life. Like I, I can think back to like these six months long stretches of time where I felt like I was winning in life because I managed to isolate myself from a lot of things that now looking back, if, if I was actually exposed to those things and maybe didn't have the choice but to participate, then I would have had a lot more interesting life now to look back on. So I'm fairly happy with how things went on the whole, but I think that it could have been like, wow, like I could write a book about this and, and it could be a bestseller. I think it had the potential to be like that. And mm. it like a, a lot of those things I like willingly missed out on. And so definitely, definitely some things that I did that were kind of just stupid. Um, and, and I wish I didn't do them. And, and of course, like most of those are, I, I could also give the cliche answer of, well, but I wouldn't change anything because like memories and whatever. Yeah. Well, and, and that is because like most of the, the mess ups that you have over your life, like will be relatively inconsequential. Like I, I said some really, like horribly mean things out of just dumbness, like just being inconsiderate when I was younger. Like I, I can think back to instances where in a in a party or something, like I offended a guy or a girl or something, or and then then I caused a lot of hurt. And you know, but I don't. I'm not even interacting with those people. Like I'm not. I'm not there to experience any of the residuals. Like Dave, I said one of the funny stories where I offended this girl in my in, in the kitchen, but like my flatmate, who was like this fat dietitian, and I was like, and are you where you wanna be? Like, that's a horrible thing. Like I never should have done that. Like, but I'm not like who knows, maybe that girl is in depression since then. If I knew that, then mm-hmm. I would maybe regret it more deeply. Yeah. So, you know, like if one of the stupid things that we did, any of us, the three of us on our night night outs if we went to prison or something and then we would have been like raped in prison or something then maybe we would regret them more dearly you know <laughs> i was gonna say i think if you have had some major consequences of it if somebody is in jail uh i'm sure they probably think for the rest of their life i regret doing that thing if they were drunk driving and they got an accident or killed somebody i'm sure they regret that as well obviously um but I think to your point, Abel, a lot of things we do, they ultimately don't have huge consequences. So I think if you think back, like Brian, you said, there's things I wouldn't have done, but that might be different than a, a regret. I think most people, when you think of a regret, it's like this thing almost that haunts you in a sense that you think back to. There's obviously things where it's like, man, like I wouldn't have done that in, in eighth grade or I wouldn't have done that or whatever, but it's just, okay, I, but I did it and it's fine. It, it didn't have these big consequences. Definitely the... For me, like the experiences I missed out on, that's the big thing I regret. Like, oh, when I was there, I really should have done that or I should have taken the time to do that. Or we had this opportunity to go see people and we didn't do that. Those much more so are are the things that I regret. And I try to, I'm, I'm pretty good these days about enforcing that I do things even if I don't want to, because I know, again, you kind of bank on those memories, but it is still hard because I think there is, at least for me, like I am actually naturally introverted. And so there's a lot of times where it's like, man, I know I'll have good memories and a good experience if I if I go do this thing, 
but it's so much easier <laughs> to just hang out at home, you know, and you really do have to kind of force yourself to do it. Yeah. And like sometimes in the Brian, you go with Demi. No, no, you're going, man. Hit it. Hit it. I got one last thing to say that's kind of uh, tangential. So go ahead. Yeah, it's just, that it's just sometimes difficult to um, difficult to be really honest about it and not hypocritical because in some cases where you say like look look dude do it like what's the downside like a typical line for example would I remember trying to convince one night a friend of mine in high school to go up to a girl and approach her and he was like just scared shitless so he didn't want to do it and i was like but what's the downside like the, like worst case scenario you will have a cool story best case scenario you might actually hit it hit it off with her and 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 what what's going to happen like you don't even know her and the thing is that maybe now even he would say like well i i, I wish i had that cool story but like that's not even completely true and i think this is true of other things as well that it's it's not like a bad experience now. It's just like oh, like it just happens and it's nothing tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And then ten years from now, it's gonna be an amazing story. Like not like but some things will actually kind of hurt you for a while potentially. Like for example, that guy, if he went up to that girl and feels like he gets horribly humiliated, like that might actually hurt his confidence for for, for a while. And like there's so many like confidence like credit points that you can lose before you turn into a like a intimidated little mess so and this is true of other things like um i've been on a lot of weddings this this summer as a guest and they were always trying to get me to go up and dance and like even now probably i would have some funny stories to tell you about like how horribly humiliating it was because i cannot move to save my life but I mean, man, like I, I would have felt so humiliated there, like that I'm like the most ridiculous sight on that dance floor. <laughs> and like that that would have influenced like how I go about things going forward when I meet those people again, whatever. So it's yeah, funny. It's, it's difficult. You say that Ava only because when you were talking about the fear of going up to a woman, I just there wasn't like a lot of relatability for me there. I was like, I don't really care about that kind of thing at all. And then the second you said dancing, I was like, oh, no, that would suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess the last thing I was going to say is that, uh, you know, kind of related to those things of just one specific instance in your life that potentially can change the outcome long term. And so there's a movie from the 90s called Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, where she's rushing for a train. And in one of her lives, she makes the train and she catches her boyfriend cheating on her. And then her life goes in this new direction. And then there's another life of hers where she misses the train, never catches her boyfriend cheating and basically ends up living her life with him. And so I think about life a lot of times in these these sliding doors moments as i call them and so in that situation abel maybe your friend goes up to that girl and maybe he humiliates himself and ends up with terrible confidence and never gets married and uh, never has kids and it's all because he got humiliated or maybe he goes up to that woman they hit it off he ends up marrying her has kids with her and his life is completely different and so it it, it's it's almost silly to, to reflect on moments like that and try to project something that may have that may happen that didn't happen but i do sometimes think about things like that like what if i didn't go to the same college i did or what if i didn't date this girl in college or what if i went into the exercise profession directly out of school instead of spending three years 
outside of exercise working in, you know, government contracting. And so there's all these pinnacle moments in our life where we make these decisions and they are what they are. And we reflect on them and we say, okay, I, I am where I am and I'm so thankful I'm where I am. So I wouldn't change anything along the way, but what if? And so those, those sort of things I think are, are interesting as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we don't, we can um, go into the next topic, but the whole like, you know, butterfly effect of one thing is just always amazing to me. Like I just, I went early decision to this college and because of that, obviously everything after that is completely different, right? So, yep. cool, cool. All right. So powerful that I'll take off my hoodie. <laughs> Another jersey. Expose the LeBron. Yeah, baby. <laughs> um, so, so Brian, we talk, I'm like the heaviest I've been in a while. You're the lightest you've been in a while, right? You want to talk about how you've been eating a ton and losing weight? Well, I was until my bike race ended. So, oh, no. okay. um, yeah, so, so I'll just, I'll just quickly, uh, give you the, the TLDR on the last nine months. Um, I signed up for a bike race. We talked about, it, I think on a prior podcast, I trained super, super hard for this bike race, uh, accumulated a ton of mileage at the last two months prior to the actual race, which occurred on October 7th, uh, the two or three months before that. I was averaging between eight and 11 hours a week on the bike. And so that was about 140 to 160 miles a week. It was a lot of movement. Most days, my Apple watch would tell me that I was burning 1500 to 2000 calories um, just from all the movement I was doing. And so my body weight plummeted uh, despite eating every single thing I could possibly get my hands on all day long. Uh, I wasn't doing any intermittent fasting. I was just eating food all the way up until right before bedtime. And my body weight plummeted all the way down to 180, which is lower than any of those photo shoots that I've done. So in the past three or four years, I've done a number of photo shoots. The lowest I ever was for any of those was 182. Um, I got to 180 and it was, it was effortless. I never had to hold back on any food item that I wanted to eat. I was full all the time. Wow. And any tracking of the calories? No, no tracking of calories. I was just trying to eat to the point of being full every day wow. for every meal, basically. And my body weight just kept going down and down and down and down. And so I uh, held the low 180s for a couple weeks toward the end of that bike race. And then uh, now we're four weeks post bike race and I'm back up to 189, 190 is kind of where my body weight has been settling. Okay. And it's still going up. So my guess would be that it continues to climb a little bit unless I actually do something to to kind of halt that. But overall, like it's been quite a revelation to me that I was able to lose weight so seamlessly that way because in the past three diets that I've done for my photo shoots each year, I was doing steps and cutting calories. Yeah. And I was constantly hungry. I was constantly food focused and the performance decrements that I noticed in my training were really equivalent, whether I was walking 12 to 15,000 steps and cutting calories or biking 11 hours a week and lifting and not counting calories, both got me to the same place. Performance was more or less the same. Like I was losing reps or weight on most pressing movements and uh, some quad movements but pretty much all of my pulling, whether it was hamstring-based or, or uh, back-based, really stayed the same, even progressed a little bit. And uh, yeah, it just, it felt so much easier and it really makes me reconsider the way that I potentially will diet in the future. So no tracking of calories, but felt like you were eating a lot. 
Um, did you feel you were leaner at this 180 than your photo shoot 182s? It's close. Um, I haven't shaved my chest in over a year now. Okay. And I have oh, way yeah. more hair on there than I ever thought that I would have because I've been shaving it for 20 years. Yeah. And so <laughs> uh, when I look at myself now, it's very ambiguous. It's tough to say. Um, I, I don't think I'm quite as shredded as I was when I was just doing steps and lifting. And I think that part of that is probably due to water retention from inflammation, just from so much exercise. Yeah. But my thought on that is that if I were to have taken a week at the end of that, maybe 10 days and stopped doing all the crazy exercise and just really lifted and walked, that I think a lot of that inflammation and water retention probably would have shed off and it would have created an interesting uh, opportunity to see what it looked like under there. Which presumably, though, would have had you closer to maybe like 178, though, right? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I know I don't feel great when I'm that low. Um, it really, when I started to feel these signs of call it diet fatigue or deficit fatigue or whatever you want to call it, it really hits me under 185. And it didn't matter whether I was just lifting and walking or whether I was doing it with all of this intense cardiovascular exercise. That low 180s place for me is just not a great place to be for all of the kind of subjective measures of biofeedback. Yeah, interesting. It's, yeah, I mean, we talk about how cardio is not that effective for fat loss right? Because I mean, numerous studies show this. But to be fair, at the extreme ends, there is a there's something to be said for your body can only adapt so much, right? Um, yeah. But even, you know, the uh, the Hadza studies and everything that they talked about, they were doing a ton of cardio, though, right? I mean, and the whole thing was that they still their maintenance was basically similar to average Americans. So I don't know how many hours per week they were doing, but presumably quite a lot. Um, now I also wonder, would your body have just adapted eventually where this was, how long were you training for this? A total of nine to 12 months, but it really didn't mm -hmm. amp up with the really high level of activity until the last three months, probably. Okay. So three months ago, how much did you weigh? I was right where I am now. 190. Okay. So that's really when you started noticing that kind of big drop. Yeah. My body weight for the first six months of the biking stuff uh it didn't really change i just kind of hung out in the 190s but i was low 190s but i was eating whatever i wanted same deal not tracking okay. at all always full and then at some point about three months out it just started dropping plummeting and there was nothing i could do about it it was like i was eating to over satisfaction and, and still you know weight was just falling off because I just wonder if it was a, you know, it's like, okay, your body got to that point where it just couldn't adapt enough anymore, if that was what happened, or if it was like, hey, eventually after, like, if you just maintain that that level of biking for years, um, would it have eventually adapted and then weight would start creeping up again? You know, you kind of have to get used to that. I, obviously, I don't know, but um, it's interesting I, to see that. Yeah, I think there's just a certain amount of compensation that can occur. And so I was listening to Herman Ponser actually on, oh, I can't remember what podcast I was listening to him on. It was one of the exercise science um, podcasts I've been listening to. It might've even been that, uh, the one that I, Inside Exercise, where I, I said, told you that one to listen to with uh, with Coggin. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but there was an interview on one of these podcasts I listened to with Ponser. 
and they were the 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 guy was pushing back on him about energy compensation and eventually at the end of the conversation he sort of seceded that the body can really only compensate up to about 600 calories per day and mm-hmm. that anything over 600 calories is just going to be uncompensated for and so but, but I think he even I, has a value no like what? sorry to interrupt but he even has a value no like uh, like um bmr plus or bmr pl- times 2.5 something like that is like the top number mm. so like and for an average size person that would be like around four like like maybe mid four thousand ish um yeah. calories like at one time i calculated um so like, Interesting. like and that's from Ponser. so that would assume that i'd be eating like i'd have to be eating 4500 calories or i'd have to be burning 4500 calories so that that that's the calorie burn that okay. you can ramp it up to like uh and and that that's where it seems to be kind of capping up mm. well in my case i mean when i was biking less i may not have been high enough for for there to to for like it might have all been compensated for and then it reached a point where i was biking so much like if you're biking 11 hours a week i was essentially averaging close to 90 minutes a day and that's you know, 900 calories of burn from biking alone each day, not to mention my walking, my general movement, my knee, my lifting, all those different other things. And so my theory was just that I, at some point was uh, exercising so much that it just couldn't be compensated for any longer. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. There, there has to be a point, right? Yeah. When, when it, your body is just like a ton of movement is still a ton of movements so, because they if, if there truly was like the compensation was like so remarkably efficient then we wouldn't see with top athletes who stop doing their stuff and then they gain a ton of weight but and and then like they go from that, that's when you realize just how lean these people were because they look like normal people in a basketball jersey or baseball gear and whatever and and then you see their faces when they stop doing it and there's a <laughs> it's like oh my god so his face was actually that lean so and i guess that wouldn't happen if uh, your body was like that crazy efficient so yeah yeah sure cool cool so i wanted to go back a little bit so we in our recent q a uh last week abel you and i had talked about the power training question and i just brian you just had a little bit of an input that you had sent us so this could be like a third input on the power question but basically the the questioner had said what was the specific thing? Basically, just if, if he would want to add any specific power training uh, based on some of the stuff that Andy Galpin had put out. Yeah, so Andy Galpin talked about the need for power training or explosive training a lot on both the Peter Tia podcast as well as this really long series he did on the Huberman podcast. And um, it's I think it's pretty common knowledge that our explosive uh, dynamic type efforts are the first things to decrease as we age. So like Olympic lifters have their peak at a younger age than, uh, than power lifters do, which are doing more of the slow controlled type movements. And then bodybuilders obviously can have their peak significantly later than that. Um, and you also see things like sprinting and jumping ability decline faster than any of these other kind of strength metrics or athletic metrics and uh and so galpin was basically saying that it's very important that we train these explosive movement patterns to keep our body uh in a condition that you know we don't lose these these abilities 
And so we know that I did a bunch of CrossFit from 2009 to 2016-ish, and that included a ton of Olympic lifting, which I really enjoyed. I I enjoyed it from the technical aspect um, of it just being more than lifting things up and putting them down, but having to have some sort of uh, learning aspect to it and uh, the neural piece as well. And I haven't done any Olympic lifting really aside from maybe twice in the last five or six years, I'll drop into a CrossFit gym and they'll be doing cleans or something. And I'll, I'll jump in and do that with them. But uh, listening to those podcasts and then just kind of thinking about how much I loved it back in the day has, has mm-hmm. really made me feel like I want to introduce some of this stuff back in. And I think that there's ways to do it in a manner that doesn't mitigate hypertrophy. And so um, like one of the, the the common arguments against doing explosive Olympic style movements is that they're they're really hard to learn and they're injurious. And so I agree with both of those things. They can they they are hard to learn and they can be injurious if you're not performing them correctly. Which unless you have a coach on hand with you cueing you and teaching you from a broomstick or a PVC pipe forward, yes, it, it can be hard to learn. Um, so what I mentioned to you guys is that just kind of getting back into it, I've just introduced a clean pull which is literally like a sort of like a deadlift with a hip hop explosive high pull at the end. Mm -hmm. And so it's not uh, nearly as risky as the other movements, but it still incorporates that explosive uh, coordination of momentum through the entire body. And I think that that's just slightly different than bodybuilding training where you're using an explosive concentric because yes, you're, you're training the fast twitch muscle fibers through lifting as quickly as you can and through quote, exploding up. Um, but it's training it specifically for one muscle or movement pattern that is related to the push system or the pull system or whatever that is. Uh, when you're doing it in the Olympic lifting style, you're incorporating the entire body, especially the important areas of the glutes and the hips and the, you know, the erector muscles of the midline and things like that, uh, where most of our power generation comes from. And so, uh, I was just, you know, writing you guys on the the group to, to say that I'm incorporating this stuff back in again. Uh, there's potentially value in it, in my opinion. And, uh, I don't think it will have any sort of deleterious effects on, on hypertrophy training, if that's the main goal. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly don't think there's going to be any negative effects to it, again, other than like slight injury risk. But it is kind of amazing to see athletes who, it, to, in one sense, it's maybe not as bad as we perceive, because even if you go from the 99.9th percentile to the 99.7th percentile, you go from elite to like maybe not even making it in the league, right? Yeah. So so maybe the, it, it's not as bad as it appears to us. But seeing like, like seeing some fighters, for example, how they perform in their late 30s even compared to their early 30s um it's just kind of amazing like like uh chuck liddell people know the ufc chuck liddell fought tito ortiz uh three times and the first two times to beat him third time was like years later and you know obviously with with combat sports there's you may maybe some actual brain damage and things going on as well but I mean, it literally just looked like a drunk uncle fighting at like a picnic or something. I mean, it was just so slow. Um, it, it was just kind of amazing to see. And you do see that with some of these guys, which is like, this is just not the same person, um, which is actually anybody who saw Mike Tyson's, I don't want to say comeback, but he kind of had an exhibition fight maybe 
That's, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, he actually looked pretty incredible uh, in some of his like, training videos. The fact that he was able to maintain that much power in his, his whatever he is, his fifties at that time is, is pretty amazing. But just that in natural bodybuilding, and going back to the, what I, I had a video, why natural bodybuilding is kind of like the best physical endeavor. Just how long you can maintain that compared to explosive sports and whatnot. And he, yeah. he, even like like Mike Tyson, even if uh, you look at him like back when he was in his 20s and then 30s. So I think he went to prison when he was something like 25, I think. Mm -hmm. And he was there for like three years. So I think he came back at age 29. And he so he was still very good, like like close to his best, but visibly slower. Mm -hmm. Like when he was younger, it, it was like, it was hard to believe that this guy is like around 100 kilograms like it, it looked like this guy's 75 kilos he was so un unbelievably quick and and it's kind of hard to explain like why does that go necessarily like it is it because like he he was still lean like when he came back that was like one of the most shredded you've seen him so, so why does that explosiveness reduce by that much and so quickly it's 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 really quite remarkable mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think uh if somebody were to want to incorporate explosive activity in as a longevity tool or whatever as as they're getting older or just to stave it off as you're younger, it doesn't have to be Olympic lifting with a barbell. Um you can achieve triple extension through hips, ankles and knees via um high jumps or broad jumps uh or I really like the dumbbell snatch. I use that with a lot of my clients that are interested in this because it allows you to get that full extension of the hips and everything and, and the coordination of the timing of pulling um, without having to worry about the barbell in space and where that is. So, you know, uh, the number of different ways you can kind of go about getting explosive, uh, but I do think there's potentially some value in that. Yep. Um Brian, I did want to ask you, you know, you ended that arm experiment a few months ago now. Uh, what have you been doing? Have you stopped arm training entirely after that? Or are you back to symmetrical training? Yeah, so I, um, I'm on a push-pull legs split right now. And I'm training arms as I usually would. Um, no, no changes. It's funny because when I finished the experiment, my arms were even in strength. Mm -hmm. For the first time in my life, uh, always my right arm had been, you know, a rep stronger than my left in most cases. And when I finished that experiment, they were even. I did the testing and I was very surprised how they were even. Literally within two weeks of going back to training both arms together, my right arm went right back to where it was. And it's it's now a rep or even two reps stronger than my left. And so that was one of the main things I was hoping to get out of the experiment was maybe I can get my left arm to catch up with the right. Yep. And so it did until I did it the other way. And then now it's just as if I never even did it to begin with. So now it caught up in strength, right? But was there a size discrepancy before? Yeah. I mean, there was a size discrepancy before and I would guess that there's still a size discrepancy now. I haven't measured, but I can just look at my arms and you know, you look at yourself and you're like, oh, my left arm looks so much smaller than my yeah. right type thing. And no one else notices it, but yeah. you do. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly still notice that. And so, yeah. But that I'm saying in the experiment that never caught up, right? No, it, it didn't. Uh, even when I did the measurements at the end of the experiment, my right arm, they both grew. Yeah. Um, but my right arm grew a quarter inch and my, my left arm grew a quarter inch according to my measurements. Um, right. So yeah, they both they both grew despite not even training my right arm at all. 
so for people, I was going to say, for people who are not familiar with the experiment, um, Brian did not train his right arm at all for how many months? Six months. Six months. And your left arm, you actually increased volume, right? Yeah, my left arm was doing uh, about an average across the six months of about nine sets of biceps a week, a direct and about seven to eight sets of triceps a week direct. And then I was doing bi- uh, bilateral movements for all of my pulling and pushing. So my chest movements, my shoulder movements, my back movements, those were all done with both arms. So I was still training my right arm indirectly, uh, but the left arm was getting a total of you know 17 sets of direct arm work each week. Right. So this is, I want to comment on the left versus right thing, and then also maybe some controversial statements that I've kind of alluded to before. But so regarding the right versus left, um, that is definitely something I noticed quite a bit. I have a half inch difference between my arms, but even then it it looks like more than that. I mean, there's times where it's like with a pump, I'm like, man, this right arm looks like a, this is an advanced <laughs> level arm. And this left arm is an intermediate level arm. And it's just yep. like, looks like three years of progress different. <laughs> Uh, difference there. But what I was going to say is, unfortunately, this just reinforces my beliefs and statements on a lot of stuff just not mattering. You know, some people put out these messages of, oh, I'm this size because I've been consistent for this long. I, you know, I had the experiment where I only trained pressing movements with my left leg for, it was a while, I have to go back and look at the actual dates, but it was like a year. And it did make a difference. Even all the isolation volume was the same for both, but the pressing did make a difference. Within a couple months of going back to doing both, completely symmetrical again. So my thighs, same measurements, as if it didn't matter at all. Uh, Greg Knuckles talked about a study where it was, you know, consistent training versus I think they were taking two weeks off every six weeks or something. Results were pretty much identical. Uh, I know we've all probably known countless people who take some time off. They come back. They're basically back where they were. I think Jeff Alberts has that post where in like one, he's like sleeping on the couch, eating Oreos or something. But it's like, yeah, but you're back to where you were within a short period of time. Uh, And then recently an update to my calf experiment. So for people who followed along, three years of just training my right calf. And actually towards the end, it did seem to make a very slight difference. I think if I were to guess... I think it was some of the really intense stretching that I was doing after it. I was doing it quite often and a good amount of volume, nothing crazy. I mean, you know, it's maybe 15 sets per week, but each one was ending with this intense stretch. But I ended up developing what I believe was Achilles tendonitis by doing that. Uh, and so I, that's basically where I, I called the experiment that, and also I was kind of wondering if some of the asymmetrical training was maybe leading to like other orthopedic issues. So I just decided to just kind of halt that. So I just looked back actually, and it's been 14 weeks since I've trained either calf, uh, at, <laughs> at the time they were now a slightly lighter, but they were a quarter inch smaller than they are now. So I just measured them this morning. They have grown uh, about three sixteenths of an inch, let's call it, since then, even though I'm not training them at all, uh, which again, <laughs> reinforces my beliefs. But again, they are now completely uh, symmetrical. If anything, actually, the left is uh, the left, which is the one that has not been trained for probably three and a half years now, is maybe an eighth of an inch bigger. And, and you can say like I'm actually pretty asymmetrical. So my uh, like the muscle belly shapes are different. So that could have just been naturally like what it was. So all that to say is that despite three and a half years of doing that, um, they're now basically exactly where they would have been proportionally. 
So I, I really do believe that for a lot of people, I understand we could talk about bringing up weak points and shapes and everything, but outside of, I think a lot of that comes from the performance enhancing world where you can have site enhancement, various drugs that help in different ways. Definitely not saying that you can't bring up different muscle groups. We've talked about that a lot if things are being trained ineffectively, but I really do think for the most part, it, it's like, look at you, Brian, 2000, what, 14, 15 CrossFit, right? Back then. I, I mean, I would guess most people aren't going to see a, a distinguishable difference between that and you now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just goes back to a lot of like, find what you like, do it consistently. But uh, some of these, some of these unilateral experiments, I think are kind of eye opening. Yeah, I think if we were to point out even one thing that is different between me and then would just go to some differences in, in back, uh, back musculature. And that would be stuff we've discussed on the podcast before, but a lot yep. of the things Abel mentioned yesterday, or when I was listening to your Q&A about, you know, introducing some of those new movements that get you to stretch across your body and stuff like that. But yeah, for the most part, man, at 2014, I was still what 17 years into training so yeah yeah like, there's just not going to be a lot that changes between 17 and 25 yep 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 yeah abel any closing yep. thoughts uh so just 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 one input as a bit of a teaser so next week uh i think uh yeah next week uh podcast i'm going to drop with uh, alex leonidas nice. or as we would say in hungarian leonidas sandor um and um he um, i'm gonna explain that on the podcast why i said that uh, but he i was asking him about his arm specialization protocol because he he did start training it with isolation lift which he didn't do before and i was actually quite baffled um that the arm volume that he did was like eight sets tricep bicep combined per week on top of the compounds and, and that's it so like that extra inch or whatever that he put on his arms over i don't know what time frame and, and that was that so i i expected at least like 15 bicep 15 tricep something like this like nope four bicep four tricep and 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 then i, I was like thinking about it and it's like why is it that surprising i mean it's not like he didn't have good arms up until that point with zero isolation mm-hmm. lifts he added four and and like if you're doing currently 10 for your biceps let's say and then you go from 10 to 14 i mean you would kind of notice that that that's that's a notable difference and he went from zero to four so i guess like proportionally that's that's a bigger difference even if you cannot divide by zero but yeah so but but it was still interesting to hear how low the volume was yeah Um, yeah for sure i think um, that's not related to anything but (laughs) Well, no, Steve Hall just had a post where he talked about um, for arms because it's a strong point for him. I think he said he was doing eight sets per week. I biceps. think it was it was like it was like four for biceps and six for triceps. I think. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, because I that was actually I messaged him about this, but like the way you wrote it, I can't tell if you're saying it was four per these exercises, but no, it was four total for biceps. Yeah, six total for triceps, um, and his arms are ridiculous, right? So, um, which I'm, I'm kind of. Glad to see him because I think he was at some point more leaning towards like the higher volume stuff. But I think he kind of comes to the same conclusions that we all kind of come to. Right. So. Yep. Cool, cool. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, so you've been on here many times before, but where can people find you? Yeah. Uh, Brian Borstein on Instagram. Uh, 
Paragon Training Methods, Evolve Training Systems podcast, Eat, Train, Prosper. And uh, yeah. Um, so I'm Able Fit Stuff on Instagram, SSD Able on YouTube. And yeah, I would I would start there. Cool, cool. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.